0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Um, so I'm sure that you guys know that you are doing a nativity series here, and they asked me to do um, a talk that was related to to the feast. So we all know the gold standard for speaking about uh, anything that has to do with on the incarnation is St. Athanasius' work. And it's very important for us to be able to read that work on a very regular basis, I'm assuming maybe some of you guys are actually reading that right now, or if you've uh, read it in the past. And it's proven to be very much the foundation that a lot of patristic thought has been founded on for this particular topic. And that's not to say that St. Athanasius somehow came up with a sort of logical and systematic way of looking at things uh, to explain the Incarnation that the later Fathers found useful, but he just articulated... Very well, very precisely, and very simply and clearly, um, what it was that the church held on from from the beginning. Um, and so, what I would like to do is to go through some of the other fathers that have spoken about the incarnation. Um, again, I think that we get a lot of um, a lot of exposure to what it is that Saint Athanasius says. And the later fathers, having taken that and built on it, uh, give us a lot of things that we can really meditate and contemplate on and be able to extract certain beautiful things. And you could see how it is that they rely on that thought as well. Um, and so there's a number of, of fathers that have done this. The Cappadocians have done it. Uh, St. Cyril of Alexandria. And, and you know, they'll the very explicitly reference his work. Um, and so... The one that I wanted to speak about today was Saint Gregory of Nissa. You guys know who Saint Gregory of Nyssa is. I'm sure everyone has heard of him. I hope everyone has heard of him. Um, he's the younger brother of another great saint. I don't know, Saint Basil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a saint, right? You're a saint. So he's the younger brother of Saint Basil, and he had a number of siblings. Um, St. Basil is one of the uh, important and most uh, widely known of them. St. Peter of Sebasti is another one. Um, And St. Macrina the Younger, who's their older sister, who essentially taught them uh, a lot of what they know. And St. Gregory of Nyssa was the one out of the siblings that really soaked up a lot of what it is that she said. Um, and was able to transform that in, in a very beautiful and uh, sort of a philosophical way. Now, most people, I would say, don't end up reading St. Gregory of Nyssa, especially uh, right off the bat, because uh, he's a little bit complex in the way that he presents things. But his system of thought is very, very beautiful. Um, the Eastern Orthodox Church actually terms him as the Father of Fathers. That's not something that we ascribe to him, uh, but it's the way that they would they would see how how well he can actually uh, put things together. And of course, as we know, the Cappadocians are St. Basil the Great, St. Gregory of Nyssa, and yeah, St. Gregory Nazianzen, which is their friend. He was a very close friend of theirs. And so that's St. Gregory the Theologian that we hear about uh, in the liturgy, and the one that wrote. Uh, the anaphora that that is ascribed to him. So um, before we sp- speak about the Incarnation, I don't want to speak too much about St. Gregory's life because I'm sure that's somewhat easily accessible. But I want to get into his thought. And so before we speak about the Incarnation, we have to speak about the heights that humanity was called to from the beginning. And so I want to read to you an excerpt from one of his works so that you could see how it is that Man is honored uh, amongst creation and just what it was that God saw in man when he was creating him. He says, Know to what extent the Creator has honored you above all the rest of creation. The sky is not an image of God, nor is the moon, nor the sun, nor the beauty of the stars, nor anything of what can be seen in creation. You alone have been made the image of the reality that transcends all understanding, the likeness of imperishable beauty, the imprint of true divinity, the recipient of beatitude, the seal of the true light. When you turn to Him, you become that which it, it, which He is Himself. There is nothing so great among beings that it can can, can be compared with your greatness. God is able to measure the whole heaven with His span. The earth and the sea are enclosed in the hollow of His hand. And although He is so great and holds all creation in the palm of His hand, you are able to hold Him. He dwells in you and moves within you without constraint. For He has said, I will live and move among them. That's the thought of man. That is what it was that we were called to be. Um... Man was, as we know, he was made in the image of God, and this is no small thing. It does not only mean that man had certain characteristics that he was endowed with that were similar to God, but somehow disconnected from him. So if we see someone, for example, that's very smart, and uh, we see how much knowledge this person has, you can point at that person and say, this person is clearly very intelligent, uh, even independent of anyone else that he's associating with. Or if you see something that's very beautiful, uh, it doesn't have to be in the midst of other things that are not beautiful for you to be able to recognize that it's beautiful. It just independently can be beautiful. Uh, that is not the kind of characteristics that we are supposed to have being made in the image of God. The reason why we have something that's so wonderful and so beautiful is because it reflects His greatness. Right? So it is only in the fact that we have an association with God that we can find any of the great things that St. Gregory of Nyssa was speaking about here. Uh, Man was called to mirror the tremendous aspects of God if he remained in perfect relation with God. And it should be noted here, especially for St. Gregory of Nyssa, uh, in his thought that uh, he doesn't say that each man is made in the image of God. He says that mankind is made in the image of God. And so one of the things that he says is, it is the whole of human nature extending from the beginning to the end of history that constitutes the one image of him who is. We, all together, in perfect unity with one another, reflecting the greatness of God, could be said to be in the image of God, from the beginning of the creation to the end. And this is particularly important when we think about salvation and the role of the Church. It's not one person in isolation that can sort of reach these heights and do tremendous ascetic feats and fast and pray and do many matanyas and pray the egbeya. And then you start seeing that he is exhibiting a tremendous amount of grace from God. And then we you know the church puts their stamp of um, seal of approval on him, and then he's declared to be a saint. And we say, I can never be like that. And once they declare them to be saints, it's almost as though because they're in a different tier than us, that we can't really relate to them. So they're supposed to be so relatable to us that the church says, this is someone that you can actually relate to. But oftentimes, in actuality, when we hear that someone is declared a saint, they become put into this other tier. And we all separate ourselves. And the way that we uh, communicate with one another in the church as well, even when we come here on Sunday, uh, even if we're struggling in our lives the way that we are right now, um, we don't think to ourselves that we're all doing it together. It's just me, my life, and if I'm able to affect my salvation, that would be a wonderful thing. Everyone is just kind of running in parallel with one another. And that's unfortunate, because that's not the way that it's supposed to be. We're already uh, so disconnected, and life very quickly teaches us that um, we can't be the same as anybody else. So if you pick your favorite saint, and you think to yourself, let me see if I can strive to be like this person, if I can have the heart of this person, if I can do the same sort of ascetic things that they do, uh, you'll see that that's not the case. And as a result of that, especially, I would say that this happens very commonly when people are starting out in their spiritual life, um, and they don't have a good experienced guide that's with them, um, they'll take on certain characteristics of the saints that they read about, or that they see movies about, or that they read about in in the Cynicsar. So, uh, and it doesn't matter how old or how modern they are, it's something that I think is is so common um, that we end up doing, and and then you'll end up beating yourself up for it as well. Um, There is uh, a very common biblical passage that we're all very well aware of, but I want you to keep this in mind when we talk about this in the scheme of the incarnation as well. St. Paul, in his epistle to the Corinthians, he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. That's like me saying, because I am not St. Macarius the Great, and I don't have his heart, and I don't do his works, that I'm not a Christian, or that I'm a bad Christian. And I would say that that's very common. That we think that way. And of course, theoretically, this makes sense to us, right? If we think, it makes sense that if I am a foot in the body of Christ, that I can't be the hand. But it's a lot more striking if I think to myself, I, as Peter, recognize that I cannot be Saint Macarius because I'm not, and he's not me. Uh, but we're all united in the body of Christ, the church. And it is in this that we find the fulfillment of our roles towards humanity the role that we are supposed to affect towards one another for the salvation of all. Again, St. Paul says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now keep this in mind as we examine one of the beautiful reasons of the Incarnation. Because all of these issues are related to one another. And, and St. Gregory of Nyssa lays this out very beautifully in his writings as to how all of these things are related. How the fall is related to the Church, how the Church affects certain parts of the salvation through baptism in the Eucharist, and what it is that we are to expect in the end. Uh, he says, the fact of being created in the image of God means that humanity, right from the moment of creation, was endowed with a royal character. God is love and source of love. The divine creator has drawn this feature on our faces too. In Cappadocian thought, uh, and very much in the 4th century, the face has very much to do with a person's identity. And so if you recognize somebody as who it is that they are, it has something to do with their face. That The word that they would use in the 4th century was prosopon, which ended up sort of falling out of favor when they refined uh, these Greek words a little bit more in the 5th century. But at the time when he's saying this, that, the, that love is imprinted on our faces. This is how we recognize each other and how we can see God in one another as well. It's not simply a feeling and it's not even an attribute because we know that God himself is love. When man, when man fell, all of mankind fell as a whole. And man did not simply fall slightly. The image that St. Gregory says is of a rock that's on the side of a mountain. And once that just becomes a bit detached from the mountainside, it starts plummeting down. And it's hitting the rocks all the way down. And it's falling by the force of its own weight. So gravity is pulling it down and it's falling. And as it's going down, it's being crushed. And this is what happened to man. Man who was united with God and within himself grew more and more separated from God and from his fellow man. This was not because he chose evil as though evil is a thing that can be chosen. Evil is not something. Evil, as I'm sure that you guys have seen that very popular YouTube video about light and darkness. and Evil is the absence of good. And this is very much characteristic of St. Gregory's thought, is that it's the absence of good that man chose. He chose not God. He didn't choose something that was substantive. Only in God is there light, and only in Him is there life and freedom. And freedom is a very tricky concept. Freedom, the way that we think about it in our lives now, is the ability to choose between two things. Here in America, we love speaking about freedom. And freedom essentially has transformed itself here to doing whatever it is that you want. That's the idea of what freedom is. And because of that, it's colored the way that we think about free will and what free will meant for Adam and Eve. And that's not the case. It's not just the ability to choose anything that you want. That's not free will. The way that the fathers speak about it is that because we fell, we became enchained. We became imprisoned. We're closed off. It's like someone that has a a drug addiction. If you put a drug in front of them and you ask them, choose to either do drugs or not do drugs, and they are a drug addict, because of their psychological and physical dependence on it, they're going to choose it. They will choose the drug. That's not freedom. That person doesn't really have freedom and so it's not a matter of just freedom of choice, but real freedom is being separated from anything that's holding you back from getting to God. Man was deceived in eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and that's not to say that he didn't know good before then. It's really funny because when we think about Adam eating from, from that tree, it's very clear to us, okay, he ate something and... At, through some sort of an effect, he knew what evil was. But we never think about the good part. Why is it called the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Why not just the knowledge of evil? Anyone ever think about that? St. Gregory of Nyssa, he says that it's because the, the, the image of something that's good is what covers evil so that sin looks like it's so tempting to us. Because if we actually knew that it was evil, if we saw it for what it was, we wouldn't do it, right? If you knew what evil was at its core, you wouldn't do it. And so you can take something that looks so appealing and so alluring. And you see this in your own experience, right? It feels good. It pulls you towards it. If you truly felt what it was, you just wouldn't do it. Man, however, was called to know only good in its purest sense. To know God and man in the purest of ways, so why was man tempted? if he had this access to God, if he had this uh, this knowledge of being able to experience God in this pure way, what brought on this temptation? The devil saw something in man that he didn't have. We all know that we say that the devil fell out of pride. But out of pride of what? We say that he wanted to be what? Like God, right? Who was like God? We're like God. And so many of the fathers, when they talk about the way that the devil viewed man in the beginning, they will actually say that the reason why the devil fell was because of us. He saw the great glory that was given to man. He who was the highest spiritual being, saw what God gave to us, which was his image. He made us the crown of his creation. We were the last to be created, the head of the physical and the spiritual world. And the devil saw this, and he didn't like it. How could something that's not just spiritual, how can something that's physical be greater than him? How can something that isn't at the throne of God, be able to contain his image. And so this is what the fathers say was the devil's envy of us. That's why he attacks us so aggressively. Because otherwise, there would be no reason for him to. If we're lower than him, if we don't have what it is that he has, he would never come after us. What would be what would be the point? But he sees something so valuable in us that we don't even recognize in ourselves. He sees ourselves as being in the image of God. And if anyone has read um, Milton's Paradise Lost, have you guys ever come across this? It's a very, very long uh, poem. I think it was uh, an English poem that uh, basically is is speaking about this. And he speaks uh, very directly about this. This is written just a few centuries ago in England. Um, And so there was man addicted to sin, chained to death, having handcuffed himself to the passions, to disease, to sorrows, because he sought pleasure away from true fulfillment, away from God. He was deceived to try to see something good and something that clearly wasn't. And so when St. Gregory speaks about the Incarnation, this is what it is that he speaks about. He says... For our infirm nature stood in need of a healer. Man in the fall stood in need of someone to set him upright. Man was fallen, he needs to be set upright. He who was deprived of life stood in need of the giver of life. He who declined from participation in the good stood in need of him who leads back to the good. He who was shut up in darkness needed the presence of life. Now, when I read this, I want you guys to continue to keep in mind that I'm clearly presenting something here that used to be in the past and should have been affected so that our own condition doesn't have this anymore. But it still does, and we're going to talk about that. He says, the captive sought the Redeemer, the one in bondage, the fellow struggler. He who is held fast in the yoke of slavery, the liberator. Were these small and unworthy things to importune God to descend to visit human nature since humanity was in so pitiful and wretched a state? And so here we are, here we sit now, in our own wretched sins, wondering how we can unchain ourselves from the passions that have dragged us down how we can free our legs from the chains of servitude to sin so that we can try to run towards Christ. And this is how we imagine our spiritual life is, that we're chained and somehow I have to pick the lock because Christ is just over there. And if I can free myself of this sin, I can run over to Him. And effectively what we're saying is, I don't need a Savior. I can do it on my own. I can pick myself up from the bootstraps here. I can pick the lock, and I can run towards Christ. And of course, that, that, that's not true, right? That cannot be true. That can't be the system by which this works. Not just before Christ came. Even now, in our own lives now, we can't think to ourselves that the way that it's going to work is that I'm just going to will myself to move towards him. And as is so often the case, because we can't do that, because we put our minds to it and we try to do it, and then we invariably fail because we're relying on our own strength, we grow very dejected and depressed in ourselves. And we say, what kind of spiritual life is this? I see saints around me. They did it. How did they do it? I'm trying, right? And you'll get upset with God and angry, and you'll you'll say this in your prayers, I clearly want to be with you. I'm trying to be with you. Why aren't you allowing me to do that? And it's again because we've been so tied up by all of these passions, by pride and greed and lust and envy and gluttony and anger and sloth and jealousy. And we think that we're going to be the ones that are going to save ourselves. You and me, battling with our own problems now, held captive in the prison of our own thoughts, imagine that we have to start doing good for God to love us. If I do something good, I can convince God to love me. If I do enough matanyas, if I fast, if I give alms to the poor, if I'm able to resist temptation, then God will love me. And that's not true. And the beauty of it not being true is in the Incarnation. Because what God did was He came when nobody deserved it. No one got to the point of being able to convince God, now we're good enough for you to come and take flesh, and now you can come and dwell among us. It didn't get to that point. We were just falling down the mountainside. And it was getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And thank God he did it that way. Because if we were on the trajectory upwards, and we thought that things were really going very well, then we would have this thought. We'd have this thought that I can do it. And this has to be a very real thing, because in our lives we experience these kinds of temptations on a daily basis. The things that we feel so chained by, the things that we really want to be able to overcome those things, feelings of anger and hostility and discontent and feeling like we're lonely, all of these things that we feel, we feel like we're supposed to overcome that by ourselves. And the incarnation, the beauty of it is that he said, you don't deserve it and that's perfectly fine because I love you and I'm going to show you how much I love you. I'm going to come. He, the life giver, came into prison itself and approached us and, as we say on the Feast of the Resurrection, he shattered the gates of brass and broke the iron bars. those things that were chaining us he broke them. he shattered all of that. He took the form of a slave, and that's the you know the very common uh verse where it says he took the form of a servant he emptied himself and took the form of a servant the actual word for servant is slave tholos slave he took the form of a slave and he dwelled amongst us in our fallen state though he was always without sin and he died and he went into Hades which is the condition of man being away from light being away from God being away from truth being away from love, and he broke all of that. And he says to us, as he sees us in this darkness, come, take my hand, rely on my strength. Anyone that knows, if you guys have ever broken a limb, for example, and you've had to be in a cast, you know that if you don't use it for a long time, it starts to wither away, right? It atrophies. And so here we are, atrophied as a result of our immobility, not being able to move towards him. And he says, just come. I'll pick you up. I will help you. You don't have to do it on your own. And we push him away. I said, this is too much. Why is it too much? If you're in darkness for a long time and suddenly light appears... It hurts, right? If you're in a dark place for a while and you go outside into the light, it hurts your eyes. And so he says, I'm not going to leave. It might be painful for you, but I'm not going to leave. I'm still here. You're trying to push me away? I'm still here. Because I am love. And I love you, and that's why I'm here. He who lives eternally accepted corporeal birth, fleshly birth, physical birth, not because he needs life, but in order to return us to life from death the word becomes flesh because of his love for mankind his love for mankind I think that that phrase is so lost on us because we don't understand how much he loves us we think of it in terms of these sorts of romantic ideals we'll try to take a fallen idea of what love is and try to imprint that on God, say oh, maybe he loves me that way The kind of love that he has for mankind is so beyond what it is that we could see. A true sacrificial love. A love that is demonstrated by a means that he didn't have to do. He created us knowing that we were going to fall. It wasn't a surprise to him. And he created us knowing that as a result of the fall... The way to bring us back is that he would have to take flesh and would have to suffer and die and go to the darkest places for us. And he said, it's worth it. It's worth it for me to create, even though I know they will reject me, even though I know that they will sin against me constantly, even though I know that the perfect man sins every day, seven times a day, I will still create them. He assumes our nature so that by mingling with the divine, humanity can be deified. This is St. Gregory of Nyssa. In this way, all the elements of our nature are sanctified. So, if it's been accomplished, if Christ has risen from the dead, and he is truly risen from the dead, why is there still pain? Why is there anguish? Why is there so much struggle? Why do we have such heartache and why do we feel so weak in our war against sin? Haven't we been baptized? Where's the grace? Baptism allows not for the complete destruction but from a break in the continuity of evil. It is the beginning of our restoration to our original blissful state but only the beginning The grace testifies that man has been pardoned and shown mercy, but not that he's become truly virtuous. It's not because Christ rose from the dead that suddenly we're all perfect beings. It's not because of that that suddenly I'm perfectly humble, or that I no longer struggle with lust, or I don't get angry with people. Gregory says that the man who accepts the water of rebirth is like a young warrior who's just been enrolled as a soldier, but who as yet has demonstrated neither martial spirit nor courage. You haven't proven yourself yet. You've just enlisted. That's what baptism is. Now you're a soldier. You don't win awards for being a soldier by standing on the sidelines. You don't do it by not going to war and just running drills. You do it in the heat of the war. Baptism and chrismation has affected such a tremendous grace that we've all become sons of God. And it is true that you will not lose your sonship to God. He will always see you in that fashion. But the likeness of a son to his father is based on how it is that he acts. You could see, for example, we have plenty of people around us that have children that look exactly like them All right? you say, my goodness, this kid is a spitting image of his father and you see the way that the kid grows up and the way that the kid acts and if the kid becomes very, very rebellious you say, that he looks like him but he's not like him he's not like his dad and that's what it is for our image and likeness we might look like him but we don't act like him that has to be proven. You have to prove yourself in the face of adversity. We don't live in isolation, and the proof of our struggle is in our daily lives. Who can say to themselves that they are truly humble if they're never given the opportunity to be prideful or if they're never humiliated in front of people? Who could say? that they have fidelity towards their spouse, if they just live in isolation, if there's only two people and they don't have anyone else that's around them, how could you say that you're faithful to your, to your wife or to your husband unless you have that opportunity to not be? And that's the way that it applies in all of our lives. All of the things that we struggle with are opportunities for us to be able to prove this. If it's only the circumstances that make you look virtuous, or rather, the lack of those circumstances, because there's nothing that's pressing down on you. What have you accomplished? In our rebirth, the degree of beauty which the soul is given through grace depends on our own desire. The more greatly we strive to live a life worthy of God, the more greatly our soul will be glorified. Notice what he says. It's in the desire for God. I'm going to read it again. In our rebirth, the degree of beauty which the soul is given through grace depends on our own desire. The more greatly we strive to live a life worthy of God, the more greatly our soul will be glorified. Not the more greatly we live a life worthy of God, the more greatly our soul will be glorified. It's the the more greatly we strive to live a life like that. He doesn't expect us that we're just going to go immediately to perfection. It's that desire that determines that likeness, even if you fall every single day. There's a famous story from the desert about a monk that really, really, really wanted to do everything that he could to show God that he loved him. And he woke up in the morning and he said, Thank you, God, for allowing me. Another day to prove this to you. Please, God, protect me from temptation. Protect me from being able to fall into any snares of the enemy. Protect me as I go out. And he went out that day, and he saw a woman, and he lusted after her, and he fell. Real fall. A monk really fell. Not just in thought, even though that's a real fall as well. And he came back that night to his cell, and he was in tears. He said, how could I do this? I know that I'm not worthy of your love, God. I'm not worthy of your salvation. Everything that you've offered to me, and I did this. Please forgive me and support me so that I might have another day. And so he went to sleep, and he trusted in God. He trusted that God forgave him. And he woke up the next day, and he prayed that same prayer, God, protect me today from going out and falling into this sin again. And he went out that day, and he fell into it again. And he came back that night, and he repented the same way. And he did the same thing for ten years. Ten years. Every day, he thought to himself, Please, God, protect me. And then he would fall that day, and that night he would repent. And at the end of his life, when he died, he saw an angel in front of him and a demon in front of him. And the demon said, How wonderful. We get to have you finally. You're ours. You lived your whole life falling every single day. Come with us. And the angel said, absolutely not. He's ours. And he said, what are you talking about? How could that be the case? He fell every day. He said that he wasn't going to fall, and he fell every single time. The angel said, yes. But every day he repented. Every day there was true tears that came down. It's this striving that we're supposed to be doing we might fall we're not perfect we're human and that's known and thank god it's not based on what it is that we're able to accomplish because if it was based on that i'd venture to say maybe no one would ever make it but it's based on that desire and because of that because of that god has given us a wonderful opportunity to be with him And not just to be in his presence and as though it's some sort of stagnant thing. When we think about Adam before the fall, lots of people think to themselves that the way that Adam was, was in in perfect harmony and everything was just at the peak of what it could ever be. And that's not true. Because if he actually was at the peak, he wouldn't have fallen. Adam could grow from that level of perfection to a a greater level of perfection. What the Bible says, from glory to glory, right? Continuing to grow. Because there is no relationship that's stagnant. If you love someone and you're growing in this love for someone, that love deepens. And if that person that you're, you're in love with is God, who has no end, who is deeper than depth, how is it that you can imagine that you're not going to progress in your love for him because it's a real relationship. It's not just a state. It's a relationship. And so St. Gregory makes use of this beautiful Greek word, which I'm sure no one has heard of, which is called epictasis, which is this continual growth, continual ascent. And you make no mistake about it. With growth comes resistance. Resistance. And with grace comes opposition. But as we all know, where sin increased, grace superabounded. Why is there still death? Gregory says it's because Christ established the path to rebirth through death. If we want to be reborn, we must die. We have two deaths. We have the death here in water, in the water of baptism, and the death that everyone else has in mind when we say death. Gregory gives this wonderful image of why it is that the devil is still fighting against us. He says, Christ went and if you can imagine that the devil is a very long snake and he cut his head off. If you guys have ever seen any sort of lizard or a snake or something like that, when you cut their head off, or even a chicken, they don't just die, right? A chicken doesn't die. Everyone knows this, right? You cut the chicken's head off, the chicken continues to run around. So what he says, is for a snake, when you cut its head off, it still writhes around in the throes of death, it's dying. But it's still causing some destruction around it. And he says that's what it is that Christ did for us. He cut his head off. And death will finally meet its end at the end of this age. And that's the stage of history that, that we're living in right now. That's the weakness of the devil. We imagine that the devil is very strong, and he is, but he's dying. And the victor that caused that to happen has already done that, and he's still with us. And so now we arrive at that topic that we had started with in the beginning, the reunification of man. We've all become separated. We're all living lives so separated, so disjointed from one another, even within the same household a husband to a wife, a a parent to their child. Everyone's so disjointed. People in this church, disjointed. People at work, disjointed. All of society, disjointed. And so what he's doing is constantly reuniting us through his body, which is the church. And the Eucharist is the express image of this, both in its hope and in its fulfillment. It's the beginning of the resurrection of mankind, which will be consummated in the age to come. And this is how we have to approach communion. It is not a taste only of heaven, but it's our ultimate reality, Or we can, for just a moment, live truly as we did and as we will, united with Him, which is something that I think many of us are very clearly aware of when we take communion. Right? I'm going to take the body of Christ, I'm going to put him into myself and we will be united this way. But it is also a true uniting with everybody else. Everybody else that takes that communion here and everyone else everywhere else throughout all of time that is united in his body. That is what heaven will be like. That true unification where humanity is again one. Not one person, but one. It's the peak of our sacramental life because it's the realization of reality beyond what we think is real. This life as we know it is nowhere near as real as the true reality in Christ. All of its struggles and pains are the path traveled by our Lord and Savior to re-effect the truest calling that we have, which is to really be Christians, to be true sons of God by His grace. And this is all affected because He took flesh flesh because he came when we did nothing to deserve it, and he offers it to us freely. And glory be to God for forever.